Welcome to The Way Home Podcast, a conversation about church, community, and culture. I'm your host, Dan Darling, here in Nashville, Tennessee, and today I'm joined by Dr. Nathan Finn. Dr. Finn serves as the Dean of the School of Theology and Missions and Professor of Christian Thought and Tradition at Union University down the road in Jackson, Tennessee. It's a great university, uh, and he's a, a great leader there. He also teaches in the PhD program at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest. The reason I want to talk to Dr. Finn is uh, his new book, The Baptist Story, From English Sect to Global Movement. This is really interesting. If you ever were curious about how the Baptist movement began, where it sort of fits in the evangelical movement, and where all of this fits in the large sweep of church history. Also, why we should know this and why we should study our history. It's a fun and lively conversation. Dr. Finn is, a, is a, just a great person to talk to and learn from, so this will be a great, great conversation. Before we begin, I want to remind you to check out my new book, The Original Jesus, published by Baker Books. This was a fun book but I think an important book to work on. I look at 10 different ideas of Jesus in the evangelical world and how we get them kind of right, but kind of wrong. So there's some fun uh, ideas like Dr. Phil Jesus or the Guru Jesus or Red Letter Jesus and how those are close, but not quite the Jesus of Scripture. It's a challenging book, but a fun book. This might be a great uh, book for somebody that maybe is struggling with their faith, someone who might be far from the church, someone who's a seeker, uh, maybe a stocking stuffer you can slip in there. If you want more information, go to danieldarling.com and click on the book cover. Can't miss it. It's a fun book cover with a bobblehead Jesus on the front. Click there and you can get that book ordered by Christmas time. But for now, let's join our conversation with Dr. Nathan Finn. Dr. Nathan Finn, thanks for joining us here on the Way Home Podcast. Glad to have you. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. So uh, you're a historian. You teach history. Of course, you're, you're dean at Union University Christian College there, but your your specialty is, is church history. I have a lot of questions, uh, particularly about Baptist history for you. But before we do that, I, I'm curious about your journey into uh, studying history. Was this something that you have always been fascinated with? Was it something that, uh, as like in college, you, you sort of had a liking for? Uh, how, how did you come to study history? Yeah, well, it's something I have always been interested in. It was uh, history was my favorite subject uh, as a high school student, uh, and so I just very much enjoyed it and ended up majoring in history uh, at a Christian college. And while I was there, uh, certainly felt called to the gospel ministry, and so I was majoring in history and minoring. In, uh, in Christian studies, and through the process of uh, being somebody who was ministry-minded and somebody who loved history, I sort of just stumbled across church history. Uh, some of my history electives were church history-ish. Some of my Christianity electives were explicitly church history. So I really felt like by the time I graduated from college that uh, that this was something I was very, very interested in, something that I wanted to pursue at the graduate level. I didn't know for certain at the time if I was going to become a pastor or if I was going to become a professor or some sort of combination, but but I knew that uh, I really loved church history, and, and even more than church history in general, 
very interested in uh, the history of Christian theology and very interested in uh, the history of the Baptist tradition, uh, which by the time I was in college had become my own tradition. Are you finding that young people uh, are are more or less interested in church history now? Young evangelicals, you know, coming into school, uh, coming into the the institutions where you've taught. You know, it depends on the institution. So, whenever I was teaching seminary students church history, what I found is that many of them were somewhere between ambivalent to negative on day one, often Mm. because they had not enjoyed their required history classes uh, as undergrads. Uh, And what I just tried to convince them of is that this is their story. Mm. You know, this is their family history. These are their family practices, their family traditions. And what I found is while not everybody loves history for sure, uh, many of those students, if not most of them, uh, by the end of the class, had a deep appreciation of history and could at least see the value of church history. Now that I'm teaching undergrads, it's a little bit of both. Uh, so my students who sense a call to ministry and, and love the Lord, uh, they're sort of in the same situation that those seminary students were in. They're just a little bit younger. Some of my students, though, are history majors, and they're taking church history classes as electives. Mm. And honestly, it can vary from student to student. Some of them uh, very much see this as sort of their family story. Others might not even be believers, or they're not sure if they're believers. This is just a class they're taking because it's an elective that fits with their schedule. So what I'm trying to do with them is convince them both that history matters, and I'm trying to uh, make a winsome presentation of the gospel and the truth of Christianity and hoping that the Lord might uh, use the story of Christianity uh, as a means of drawing them to faith in Christ. You know, I wonder if there is kind of a uh, ambivalence or kind of indifference to church history, if that's a product of, I would say, just in my estimation, an evangelical movement that at times has been kind of unmoored from its own story, if you will. I know growing up, grew up in a great church, you know, you know, great parents, learned the gospel, so appreciative of my heritage. And yet, you know, there wasn't much reference or tie or learning about church history. It's almost kind of like, hey, we just discovered Jesus, you know, this week or something. Yes, um, yes. Do you see that uh, as Timothy, a problem? Timothy George, who teaches church history at Beeson Divinity School at Samford University, uh, used to begin his lectures, maybe he still does, uh, with this great line that uh, my goal in this class is to demonstrate for you that uh, there's 2,000 years of Christianity between Jesus and your grandma. <laughs> and really uh, and I think that's absolutely true. Uh, I think that on the one hand, you've got uh, these students who've grown up in traditions that have a deep love and appreciation for the Bible and a great zeal for making a difference in the world we live in right now. But there's this sort of historical myopia uh, about past church history. But I also think another problem is just a lot of students haven't been exposed to good history in general. I mean, they think history is memorizing dates and names for a quiz in a high school or college class. And so uh, partly, I don't blame people for not liking history if they've not been properly introduced. And uh, and that's going to apply to church history as well. So there, there's a couple of different things that guys like me are trying to overcome whenever we teach church history. I wonder, too, if in this sort of um, increasingly challenging uh, times for the Christian church, you know, maybe uh, some have said a, maybe an increasingly secular uh, age where maybe the Christian Christian truth is not as tolerated or affirmed, if a knowledge of and appreciation for church history might be more important. 
I think it is very, very important. Uh, just in the interest of full disclosure, I'm not one of these Christian America guys mm-hmm. who thinks that all the founding fathers were closet or not so closet evangelicals <laughs> who were, you know, reading John Piper and J.I. Packer before they met at the uh, Continental Congress. But I do think that uh, the Christian worldview once was behind American culture and was part of the air we breathe to a much greater degree than it is now. So in many ways, as we've sort of lost our Christian memory in the West, and I think that applies to America as well, uh, we're trying to re-enchant Christianity with uh, with these students and with people in our churches, and, and church history is a a key way to do that. Uh, I've been encouraged in recent years to hear about a growing number of churches uh, that are offering church history courses or church history reading groups or Sunday school classes or pastors who are doing church history type series. And I think there's a, a recognition that uh, that we are hamstrung in many ways as the people of God if, if we don't know the story that we're a part of. Hmm. That's such a good word. I want to pivot a little bit and just talk about church history. You recently published a book with with some other historians on the Baptist story, uh, which I think is fascinating. And I just want to ask a few questions about that. I mean, first of all, kind of a basic question. There's some dispute, some disagreement maybe about actually when the Baptist movement started, right? So can you shed a little light on that and maybe kind of offer sort of your perspective of where, where did this sort of movement get its beginning? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a long-standing debate uh, among Baptists as to when our movement started, and there's basically three different views. Uh, one view says that uh, the movement is an offshoot of uh, radical Puritan movements that you saw in the 1500s and then especially the early 1600s in England, and some of those folks embraced believers' baptism and and other Baptist distinctives, and sort of there you have the Baptist movement. And I'm generally in that camp. And then you have some people who go about 100 years before that in the early 1500s, and they say, well, you have these Anabaptists on uh, continental Europe, and they're similar to the Baptists, so that they do some other things as well, you know, pacifism, and they mm-hmm. don't take oaths, and they read the Sermon on the Mount real literally, and some of them aren't real down on private property, um, but they still kind of do church a lot like Baptists, and so uh, that's really where the Baptist movement started. Uh, and, and I see the merit of that argument. I definitely think that there's a lot of commonality between Baptists and Anabaptists. I just, I just don't see enough of a paper trail to say, yes, it's the same movement. And then you have some people who say, forget about history. Mm-hmm. When I read the Bible, I think the New Testament church looks a lot like a Baptist-ish movement. And so there's really always been Baptists. And then Jesus and John the Baptist and Paul and all those other guys, they're the ones who started the Baptist movement. And uh, Baptists are really just authentic Christians who are following the New Testament. Hmm. Now, as somebody who is a Baptist, you know, I think the way that Baptists are trying to do church is closer to the New Testament than the way other folks are trying to do church. And if I didn't believe that, then I would be be a a part of a different tradition. Um, But it's a big jump from we're trying to obey the New Testament uh, to Baptists are the original Christians, and there's probably always been Baptists and these other groups that do different things. They're sort of sub-Christian, and we're the true faith. 
I just I don't think because of history uh, or just because of Christian charity and wanting to show neighbor love uh, to other believers who disagree over secondary and tertiary doctrines that uh, that I can go there. Though I certainly appreciate the recognition that uh, that the New Testament uh, churches were uh, lower churches. They were baptizing believers. Uh, all the members were professing believers and whatnot. I get that. That's why I'm a Baptist. I just don't think that theology should drive history uh, in that sort of way, because then what we're really doing is using history as an apologetic, uh, rather than uh, letting the sources speak for themselves. And I think when the sources speak for themselves, what we see is, while the New Testament, you've got some of those doctrines that are there, and certainly the Anabaptists are, in the broadest sense of the term, a Baptistic or Baptist-ish movement, what we think of as capital B Baptists began in the early 1600s in England when some radical Puritans uh, came to new convictions about baptism and church membership. I think that's the movement that modern Baptists are in continuity with. I'm curious, too, how, you know, sort of the sweep of history around the Baptist movement, things that were happening at the time, particularly the rise of the United States of America, like how important was that rise to kind of fuel the Baptist movement? It seems like, in some sense, they, they go together, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a sense in which uh, Baptists found a natural home mm-hmm. uh, in America, especially by the 1700s. I don't think that was clear in the 1600s. In the 1600s, uh, Baptists and just about anybody else who wasn't a Puritan in New England or an Anglican in the South, uh, just about everybody else was being persecuted. But by the time we get to the First Great Awakening, there's this stronger emphasis on the authority of Scripture, having a born-again experience, um, evangelism and missions. That just goes very naturally with a Baptist understanding of the church, where the emphasis is on um, you know, everyone being a believer. And Baptists have always advocated for a free church and a free state, some form of church-state separation. So you've got many of the founding fathers who, for a variety of reasons, sometimes religious, sometimes more pragmatic, enlightenment-driven, are making very similar arguments. And so uh, the Baptists are willing to uh, partner with men like James Madison and Thomas Jefferson to uh, promote uh, church-state separation. Uh, Baptists tend to be a democratic-ish movement, mm-hmm. so as America's becoming democratic, Baptists are kind of quintessentially American. So I think there's a very real sense that uh, that Baptists have uh, thrived in America uh, because there's a lot that's in American culture uh, that sort of overlaps with some of the things that Baptists are emphasizing. And of course, as that has been less the case, uh, over the last couple of generations, as America's become more secularist, as we've become more religiously pluralist, what we find is that Baptists have gone from being almost hyper-American evangelicals uh, to increasingly being outsiders. And uh, recently a book on Baptists in America was written by uh, Tommy Kidd and mm-hmm. Barry Hankins, uh, who are colleagues of mine who teach at Baylor University. And I think they do a great job of zeroing in on American Baptists and really getting at this kind of insider-outsider dynamic. I think that that has a lot of explanatory power. Uh, We used to feel right at home in America, and increasingly uh, we feel like strangers in Babylon. And as for what the future holds, that's for the prophets rather than the historians to decide. Well, it it is interesting, isn't it, though, that 
in some ways, Baptists are returning to some of the roots in that we're fighting for religious liberty and for the right to worship freely and all these things. I, you know, it's, it's interesting when I talk to evangelicals, you know, one of the things I o- always say, is, you know, regardless of what do you think about Southern Baptists, like them or not, you really do have so- Southern Baptists, or you usually have Baptists to thank for religious liberty, right? Yeah, Baptists definitely uh, were fellow travelers and encouragers of the Founding Fathers who were the loudest promoters of religious liberty. And it's even possible, we can't prove it in a slam-dunk sort of way, but it's even possible that Baptists had some direct influence on that. There there are stories of uh, John Leland, who was a Baptist minister in Virginia and Massachusetts, uh, strategically partnering with James Madison uh, to contribute to the Religious Liberty Amendment that goes into Virginia's Constitution and ultimately, in a modified form, becomes the First Amendment in the Bill of Rights. We can't prove for sure that uh, there was direct collusion, but there certainly was was encouragement from Leland and other Baptists to go in that direction. Uh, I certainly know lots of Baptist preachers who want to say that uh, Americans believe in uh, religious liberty because of the Baptists. And whether that's true or not, I don't know. But let's just say that Baptists have always been very comfortable with how openly uh, American politicians and other leaders have promoted religious liberty from the very beginning of our true nationhood up until almost the day before yesterday. Mm. And of course, it's much more difficult now than it used to be on in that regard. Uh, I'm curious too, when, when, I, when I'm thinking about being Baptist and kind of the distinctives of, of Baptist, you know, Believer's baptism, being cradle Baptist, free church, congregation—for the most part, you know, congregational form of government—and you look through church history. How do you counsel young evangelicals and people who are thinking about history? Because in some sense, you know, the Baptist movement is divergent from even some of the thinking of the you know the church throughout history, particularly on on baptism and even form of church government, but then we also sure. appreciate the reformers, you know, so we're in the we're in the legacy or in the line of the reformers and the Protestant Reformation, and yet we're also in some ways heirs of some of the Anabaptist, you know, movement. So how, how, do you, how do you encourage your, your students to think through that? Well, one of the things that I try to point out to them is that uh, history itself uh, doesn't have any sort of final authority for how we think about the Christian life, and that would include how we do church. So we always want to begin with the scriptures. But there's no doubt that Baptists, uh, up until really the 20th century, if I can use an even broader category, Baptist-ish or Baptistic Mm -hmm. Christians were in the minority. Uh, Now, uh, Baptist-ish Christians are far and away the largest group besides Roman Catholics when you look worldwide. Um, Not all those groups would call themselves Baptists, but they're practicing a basically Baptist view of the church. Um, But that's definitely the case historically. Um, But when I talk about church history, what I point out to students is that uh, there's a couple of different reasons why, as a Baptist, I think we can see uh, the church getting off base, if you will, when it comes to baptism and polity. In the case of baptism, it's really a question of what do we do with infants. Uh, There's not a single instance clear in the New Testament of uh, of a child or certainly an infant uh, coming to faith in Christ or being baptized. There are household baptisms. Uh, But of the four household baptisms, three of them clearly refer to everybody believing. So there's just not a lot of wiggle room there 
on uh, on what's happening with young children. There's nothing that tells us clearly. You know, little Demetrius was nine when he came to faith in Christ. And so pretty early on, after the time of the New Testament, the church starts struggling with what do we do with our children? Uh, you know, now that we have folks who've actually been raised in the faith, how do we know when they become Christians? Uh, when do they become a part of the church? When do we baptize them? And even through all that wrestling, the first reference we have, unambiguous to infant baptism, is 198 A.D., uh, Tertullian's On Baptism. And he criticizes the practice of infant baptism and then is still arguing that believer's baptism is normative. And so I think the earliest sources outside the New Testament are still showing that even if there's some variety of practice that's beginning, uh, the idea of people who are actually professing faith in Christ being credo-baptized seems to be the norm. And then in the case with church polity, there's a similar sort of thing going on. What do we do in a world where there are no more capital A apostles? Mm -hmm. Because in the New Testament, you've got two things happening. You've got sometimes decisions being made by churches and sometimes decisions being made by the apostles. So what do we do when there aren't any more capital A apostles? Well, the more Episcopal traditions say that apostolic authority passes to the next generation of church leaders who eventually get called things like bishops and archbishops and cardinals. Others say, well, uh, you know, let's say that apostolic authority passes to the clergy in general, and so groups of clergy can get together and make binding decisions for churches, and that's sort of the Presbyterian model. And then I think the congregational model at its core says, well, the apostolic authority has passed to the congregation itself, certainly under the leadership of pastors, but always with an open Bible and bended knees. So uh, none of these, I don't think, and maybe I'm getting into dangerous territory here for a Baptist uh, scholar, I don't think you can make a slam dunk case for any of these versions of polity. It makes sense to me why all of them adapted out of the New Testament practice. But when I look at the New Testament practice, I see some version of kind of an apostolic congregationalism where the mm -hmm. church is making a lot of decisions, but the apostles can overrule it. And I think the best adaptation of that to a world without apostles uh, is to say that the churches within themselves have the ability to make decisions so long as they're doing that under the lordship of Christ and so long as they have open Bibles whenever they're doing it. Uh, but it's not as clear a case as believer's baptism, in my opinion. I want to ask some questions just about the, the you know, the modern Southern Baptist movement, you know, that we're both a part of, probably right. a part of, um, and then, you know, about the broader evangelical movement. Uh, and the first question is just, what gives you hope about the Southern Baptist Convention, about the movement, and what are some things that maybe concern you? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because these two things are directly related to each other. Um, one of the things I've been concerned about, I want to begin there, actually, and I'll get to the hope. One of the things I've been concerned about for a long time is the way that Southern Baptists have not handled theological diversity within the camp very well. Um, you know, we had this big battle in the 70s and uh, 80s and 90s over uh, basically conservative Orthodox uh, Southern Baptists versus more progressive Southern Baptists and, and those who were kind of in the middle aligning with the progressives. And we had a whole generation of Southern Baptists who came of age with a lot of fight in them, and they were fighting over theological diversity. Well, even among Orthodox 
conservative Bible-believing Southern Baptists, and, and that's the group that wins, you know, that, that's the group we're a part of, yeah. um, there's still a lot of diversity within those sort of conservative boundaries. And I feel like uh, there were a lot of guys who got so used to fighting they didn't know how to get along with people during peacetime. Mm. And, uh, and so there was still a lot of sniping over theological differences, methodological differences. I mean, sometimes even stuff as silly as, does a pastor stand behind a pulpit or sit on a stool when he preaches? I and mean, it's just ridiculous, some of the things that we fought over. So for a long time, that's discouraged me. But I'm encouraged and what I think are recent moves towards a greater sense of unity and cooperation among Southern Baptists, and some of this is in response to the culture. So as I'm sure you know, uh, Rod Dreher uh, has called in recent days for a, uh, a Benedict option, mm-hmm. right, as we respond to the culture. And, and our mutual friend Andrew Walker has responded with a Buckley option. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I feel the weight of both of their arguments. There's things I like about what both of them are saying. As a church historian, I'm actually saying this is a Baptist moment mm. for us because we really are in a context very similar to the context that the early Baptist emerged out of. And I think the realization of just how much spiritual lostness there is in America, mm. the realization that uh, – we are an increasingly post-Christian culture when it comes to just kind of how the worldview uh, is at play around us. Uh, whenever we see all these threats to religious liberty, I mean, I think there's a sense in which uh, the things that we've been fighting amongst ourselves about now seem pretty petty and pretty unimportant whenever we're looking at a nation uh, where 70 or 80 percent of the people are lost, at least. When we're looking at a nation where uh, Christians aren't allowed to, uh, or increasingly, I shouldn't say not allowed to, but there's pressure put upon Christians whenever they bring their faith into the public square. And there's a real opportunity for us to unite around the gospel and the Great Commission and a Christ-centered cultural engagement and maybe thrive in ways that we've not thrived in a long time. And so even though I bemoan what all of these trends mean for American culture, I actually think it's a great commission moment for us, and that rather than sitting around and and kind of poo-pooing the whole thing, uh, Baptists ought to be excited at this opportunity that we have uh, even in the midst of some pretty terrible things that are happening around us. Mm. I, I tend to agree with you. And the one thing that as, as, as you look at the broader evangelical movement, for me, I see this is a great time to be a Southern Baptist in so much in terms of just the sheer resources and the infrastructure. Like you said, when we get it right and we're unified, when we're we're united on the important things of orthodoxy, uh, there's really a lot that Southern Baptists can do. And, and the second thing I, I think of is just... Um, being connected and rooted as a Southern Baptist, rather than sort of being just merely evangelical where there's not a whole lot of rootedness, uh, especially as we get into more, you know, facing a more secular culture, right? Right, right. So it's interesting that you're talking about this. I'm actually have just recently uh, sent an article uh, that I think is going to be published online in the next few days on uh, answering the question... uh, is denominational identity a thing of the past? And I use Southern Baptists as a test case in this article and basically say that among sort of conservative evangelicals, there's always been a sense in which some of us are denominational evangelicals. 
and we appreciate parachurch ministries and, and kind of trans-denominational things that are out there. I know I've been blessed by many of those. Uh, there's a sense in which we come into the evangelical movement through our denominations. And, and Baptists and Presbyterians historically have been denominational evangelicals. And so I think we are ripe for a comeback of denominational evangelicalism where uh, we recognize that there's a rootedness in these traditions. Uh, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to say, huh, how should we respond to all these changes in culture? We can mine our traditions to uh, to see what's there. And there's a greater opportunity to uh, pass the faith on to the next generation whenever we're rooted in a tradition like that. And so uh, certainly denominationalism brings its problems, and we want to make sure that our denominations are appropriately Catholic and part of the great tradition and, and not just sort of narrowly thinking about our own little you know yeah. corner of the world. But I definitely think that denominational evangelicals like Southern Baptists don't have as much uh, ground to cover as uh, kind of the booming non-denominational megachurch that's trying to figure out uh, how to fit in this world, and all they have is an open Bible. We've got to have an open Bible if we have nothing else. But man, our traditions can be a great mm. help uh, whenever we uh, approach them with an appropriate appreciation uh, rather than some sort of idolatrous appreciation. It does remind me of the good things that I like I don't agree with everything in the Benedict option, but the good things about it I like are, are this idea that the movement is only as strong as its institutions. That's right. Uh, and, and Ross Douthat said a, a very similar thing, you know, that, for for instance, on issues like marriage, the, ar- the, the argument and the movement will only be as strong as is how strong the institutions are, which which kind of leads me to my, just my last question. As you survey the evangelical movement today in terms of cultural engagement, just in terms of strengths and weaknesses, kind of what what do you see? What gives you pause and what concerns you? And what gives you hope as well? I would say that what gives me hope would be those institutions that are rooted either in a denominational tradition or are rooted with just a deep sense of being classically orthodox in their theology and their emphases, or both. So, uh, so I'm very encouraged by groups like uh, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. I'm very encouraged by uh, groups like the Colson Center. Um, I'm very encouraged by uh, those sorts of organizations. Where I'm nervous is uh, the groups that are talking a lot about justice, but they talk about justice without also talking about the gospel. Mm. Uh, I am a big believer in a Christ-centered approach to justice. Christians have always cared about that. My hero in the faith is William Wilberforce, and I think he, he brings these things together. He wasn't a Baptist. He is now, but he wasn't a Baptist when he was alive. That was a that was a joke that he is now. But... Uh, but where groups are bringing together a deep rootedness in the gospel with a commitment to justice, I can get excited about it. But the groups that are sort of justice, 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 but they're just assuming the gospel, I am fearful that they're just a few steps away from abandoning the gospel because that's the, generally the way the trajectory goes. Uh, you know, the, the, the generation that assumes orthodoxy, the following generation rejects orthodoxy. And so uh, I'm praying for a gospel renewal 
among all believers who are committed to evangelical cultural engagement, because if it's not rooted in the gospel, then it's not going to be Christian over the long haul. Well, Dr. Nathan Finn, thank you so much. Great, great word, great insights. I'm always fascinated by these topics, Baptist history and church history and evangelical movement. Thank you so much, and I appreciate you for joining me. Well, thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. Well, I want to thank Dr. Finn from Union University for that great conversation on the origin of the Baptist movement. And if you enjoyed this, would you let us know by sending us an email, wayhome at erlc.com, or writing a review on iTunes that helps others find the podcast. If you like this conversation and you'd like to hear others, we have uh, all of our previous podcasts listed on danieldarling.com. You can download and listen to them there. invite you to check that out. also want to remind you about my book, The Original Jesus from Baker Books. might be a great stocking stuffer for a friend who is searching, seeking, wanting to know more about Jesus. You can go to my website and click on the book cover and order it and have it by Christmas, perhaps. But for now, thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. The Way Home is recorded and produced by Gary Lancaster. Research is conducted by David Clausen, and scheduling is handled by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.